You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. If you want to enslave a people, the first thing you do is remove their sense of worth. But you know, you, you can bet your boots, Chicken George had a very clear sense of his worth. So did Kuta Kinte. So did Fiddler. Roots author Alex Haley. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Very few authors get the chance to see in their lifetime the full breadth and scope of the impact one of their books has on society and culture. The one author who had that privilege was Alex Haley. His meticulously researched 1976 book, Roots, which was the story of his own family's ancestry in Africa, became not just a bestseller, but a cultural milepost. It awakened a new pride in family and ancestry among millions of African Americans, and it shone a harsh spotlight on the horrors of slavery for black and white families alike. ABC TV recognized the power of Haley's book, and it commissioned what became America's first major television miniseries, Roots, in 1977, and it was and remains a landmark television event. Now, I met Alex Haley almost 33 years ago, when he had just finished a novel based in part on characters inspired by Roots. So here now, from 1988, Alex Haley. I can easily imagine the people who fell in love with Roots, who carry around a dog-eared copy and they love that book, have been wondering, have been waiting so long for the next Alex Haley book, they've been wondering, what took you so long? You sound just like my publisher and my agent. <laughs> Almost the same words. And in the case of the agent, with a little pungent word. <laughs> yeah, but, but the thing is, um, first is simply, you know, time flies. That's part of it. Then the other thing is that uh, when you do something, if you're blessed enough to do something like Roots that is accepted as well as that, and I say it not that I, I really don't feel that, you know, I am so great, I did, I did something so great, but what really makes a product like a book or a painting or a composition, musical composition great is not so much the creator of it as it is that great big question mark public out there who will decide what they think about something and if they receive it in phenomenal manner as happened with Roots, that's who really is responsible. Anyway, when that happens, if that happens to you, you are drawn into public appearances more than you ever dreamed. I, I had more public appearances in the first six months after Roots than I'd had my previous life. And... It was simply that you couldn't very well say, at least I couldn't very well say, I refuse to go to this place where people are, in some cases, even clamoring for you to come, you know. And sometimes it would be uh, very, very frequent, it would be good causes. Uh, I don't know how many inner cities, officials, or people who worked in agencies, or, or mayors even, you know, sent word through the publishers, through my agent or somebody, we need to have him here because it can help the young people. You know, when you get that kind of call, you just really can't say no. At least I couldn't, and, and, and to this day can't to the same degree. So anyway, there's all kinds of that 
uh, call for you, and then I got into public, I mean, professional speaking. You have to get with a lecture bureau if you get lots of requests because there's no way in the world you can handle them. I know one in the year 1977, after Roots came out, the office uh, in my office in Los Angeles, they try to keep running tallies of things, and there were 2,000... 30-some-odd requests for me to speak in one calendar year. Well, you know, when you're in that, you can't even answer. You couldn't even acknowledge. So you have to get a lecture bureau, and I did get one. And so they began to book me, and it was a pay thing. They, they would People would pay me to speak. And I was going out. I remember one year they said I spent 226 nights in hotels speaking. And I'm not complaining. I mean, you're blessed to be so sought after, but I'm talking about why you didn't have a book written. <laughs> and then, uh, at the same time all this was going on, I was very conscious of the fact that I am a writer, that the only reason people wanted to hear me speak was because I had written something that they knew about. And so I would do the best I could. I would generally go to sea. That's where I write mostly. I'd take cargo ships and go out in the ocean. And over that period of 12 years since Roots was published, I have been to see lots of times, and I have written a good deal to the degree that now I have three books in one or another phase of, of, of st a stage of, of preparation that I think is safe to say that I will have a book each year for the next three years hmm. being published. Mm -hmm. Of course, you'd probably drive yourself crazy, too, if right after Roots had come out, if you'd tried to write something to follow up with. You, you really kind of couldn't have. You know, when, when you come down to these things, we are all just really meat and bones and, you know, the same f uh, f physiological components that everybody else has. And, and what makes one person different from another or do better than another, as we phrase it, a lot of times it has to do with, with things like discipline or who, how do you use time. That's one of the big, big factors. And uh, for myself, I'm not awfully good at either, particularly when it's something pulling at me which kind of cries out, look, I'm another human being. Help me some. And you hear that in lots of forms, including directly, you know. I'm wondering about something, and this has troubled me for some time. I've interviewed in the course of the last three years hundreds of authors of every conceivable kind of book that come through here. Yet I can count almost on the fingers of one hand the number of black authors that have come through here. Do black authors just not get published in America today? Well, I, I wouldn't say, you certainly couldn't say they do not get published in America, but uh, certainly nothing like the percentage of black authors as blacks relate to the, to the, to the uh, population. Um, why this is, I don't know. I, 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 find it, I find it difficult to think that there is some uh, understanding among publishers or something that black authors will not be published beyond a certain degree or amount. I, I, and then the other thing is, I guess it sort of comes down to what are black authors writing about. And publishers generally, in a, a relatively understandable way, are publishing what will make money for them. Now, if you want to know somebody with frustration, uh, I have talked to a couple of, of cases, publishers who were black, or black, uh, you know, lean toward black, who received from black authors 
a tremendous lot of material because they had not sold it elsewhere. And it would generally come to these companies with kind of a, well, you are black, so now let's see what you are going to do thing. And um, their problem is very difficult in that it's the same thing in Hollywood with, with uh, scripts that, that have come from black sources. But I tell you this, there are certainly now, there is certainly now a rising number, increasing number of very good black authors. And, and it has to do with, another thing is accessibility to just the idea of writing. You know, say, um, among us as a people, our background really has been one of where, where parents of children who the parents had insured were in school and working, the parents really were much more pragmatic. They would talk about get a job doing something they could touch, taste, feel, you know, be a teacher, be a doctor, be a this or that. Writing would not normally have been frown, uh, smiled upon so much as a profession within uh, up to the last maybe f 10 or 15 years among black people. I think that is probably true. Um, my father would never have, I don't believe he would ever have agreed to my trying to become a writer. I became one totally by accident. And, uh, and and that's not to say my father wasn't pulling for me because he was. He was himself a college professor. But you find, I guess, I, I'm just thinking, plucking off the top of my head, some, say, say the late Lorraine Hansberry. She came from a family which was a very upscale family, highly educated, and the kind of family who much more than others would have encouraged her writing. Or take, say... Uh, just in the area of, of lady writers, say the cur current Tony Morrison, who's a powerful, beautiful writer. Uh, I don't know Tony's, uh, you know, immediate family background, but I do know that she is a, a, a very well-educated woman, uh -huh. and so that no doubt influenced her going into writing. She was, for a time, as a matter of fact, an editor at Random House, and uh, she. When she began to write, she was obviously inherently a very powerful writer, and she is that. And then I think of, say, a buddy of mine, C. Eric Lincoln, Dr. C. Eric Lincoln. Um, he came up poor in a way, but rich in parents that wanted him to get somewhere and who saw him educated and would not have accepted otherwise. And, and as a matter of fact, when Eric was getting his doctorate degree, see, we were introduced, he and I, by Malcolm X, who knew both of us. And Malcolm, uh, Eric had been working with Malcolm to write the book, The Black Muslims in America. And then I was working, about to go to work with Malcolm to write the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so he introduced the two of us. Then you'd come into people say like Alice Walker, you know. Uh, uh, these these are a younger group coming along, and I can assure you that behind them uh, is another group. And so I think, I think what we are looking at is what is going to become a cumulative rise in the number of black writers who will be published, and not only published, who will be sought after. After this short break, the unique challenge Alex Haley faced in writing a book after Roots. Now back to my 1988 interview with author Alex Haley.
this particular book, A Different Kind of Christmas, what, what's special about it to you? What, what touches your heart about this book? Well, I think the thing that touched my heart more than anything else was that after having been 12 years without a published book, I wrote that book within about 60 days. And, and it is now a book that you're holding in your hand. It was a kind of a thing where a, a series of circumstances just brought it into being. David Walper, the famous producer, is a good friend, and he and I were talking one day, and he said, you know, there just ought to be a network Christmas show with black characters and ideally characters out of roots, which are so implanted in the public mind. And I certainly agreed and told him, I had been fiddling around with an idea that I thought would apply, and it was an underground railroad idea. Now, this is nothing unusual or new, because anybody who knows slavery knows about the underground railroad to one another degree. So I came up with, David said, go uh, write a story, and I did do that. And then he took the story (coughs) and went to ABC Network with it, and then they said to... uh, uh, have a writer develop it, and he gave it to a scriptwriter, which is the way it always is done. About that time, Doubleday, hearing of this, there's an editor there of, of just a venerable editor named Herman Golub, called my agent and asked if I would write a book about this show. Mm-hmm. It'd be something like, say, Roots went with the Roots series. <coughs> this was going to be a two-hour show, but could sustain a book. So I said I would, and particularly after he said, well, you've been 10 years with no book. Do you think you can write a book in two months? And the thing was that I would have to write it that quickly in order for it to be published now. And I sort of took on the challenge. Then the next thing that happened was the strike, the Hollywood writer's strike. Suddenly now I couldn't talk to the scriptwriter. I couldn't talk to David because this is forbidden, you know, in a strike zone. You can't do anything that might be development of a show. And there was the pressure to get it on for Doubleday. So the only way I could see to avoid all that and and get me and nobody else in any problem (coughs) was I plotted out and wrote a story different from the first story, different from the television story. But the theme was the same, the Underground Railroad. My story in the book, A Different Kind of Christmas, is set in 1855. The television story is set more nearly like the early 1800s. The television story stars LeVar Burton as Kunta Kinte, uh, Lou Gossett as Fiddler, very familiar characters, world-famed characters by Mm -hmm. now. And my book stars a new character called Harpin John, whom I created. <coughs> Harpin John is Chicken George Vintage, younger by far than Kunta Kinte and Fiddler. And Harpin John is a virtuoso harmonica artist. You see, during slavery, there were quite a number of slaves who had skills, who had personalities one thing or another, which made them not only known but admired by white and black alike, although they were slaves. And I particularly like to write about slaves who transcend the nameless, faceless anonymity that 
oftentimes characterized as slaves. I like for people to talk about these characters and it, in, a, in, a, in a very subtle sense, it does something. It changes the perception of slaves. You know, when, when, if you want to enslave a people, the first thing you do is remove their sense of worth. And that was done pretty well with the slaves, by and large. But you know, you, you can bet your boots, Chicken George had a very clear sense of his worth. So did Kuta Kinte, so did Fiddler, and so does Harper and John. So I like with the privileges that a writer has to be able to thrust out into the consciousness of the public slaves who, although slaves, were very distinct macho men that we need to deal with. I was in, I was so tickled. About three weeks ago, <coughs> I was in um, Cairo, Egypt, and just such a joy. People came up to me and they're talking like they might have been in Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> about Cheeking George and about Kunta Kinte. Those characters and others have gone literally universal. And people talk about them never with a thought of their being abject humiliated slaves, but with their being men among men type thing. <clears throat> so that's my uh, perspective, I guess, toward the things I write, if they have to do with slavery. Today, August 11th, 2021, would have been Alex Haley's 100th birthday. He died in 1992 at age 70. And you can find easy Amazon links to Alex Haley's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my 1995 interview with another man who traveled to Africa to explore his family's ancestry, Barack Obama. This country is inevitably going to be undergoing changes simply uh, due to demographics. Whether or not my children or your children will have to struggle with these same issues uh, depends on what we do. And hear my chilling 1993 interview with the survivor of one of America's last racial lynchings, James Cameron. The mob came into the jail. The first they got Tommy out and hung him on a jail window. And then they came back into the jail and they got Abe out and hung him on the tree. And then they came back to get me and they had me scheduled to be hung right between the two of them. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as we prepare to commemorate VJ Day, the end of World War II, you'll hear my conversation with a woman who, along with her two sisters, had a tremendous impact on the GIs of World War II, my 1993 interview with Maxine Andrews of the Andrews Sisters. She stopped the show, and she said, fellas... I have a note here. Your CEO said, I'm supposed to read this to you. She opened up this note, and she looked at it, and then she started to cry. And as she cried, like all sisters do, Laverne cried, and I cried. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. ¶¶